Hey, Shug, how you doing today? What's up, man? Well, I'm not sure if uh, our listeners are aware of the what's going on in NASCAR. Personally, I never really uh, uh, fo- followed NASCAR, but the social media is really uh, a buzz with what happened last week. There is a driver, African-American driver, uh, yeah, Bubba Wallace. Yeah, he's biracial, so he's white and black. He's, yeah, and he's from uh, the South. He's from Alabama. Mm-hmm. He's 26, but he's had a career for like over over a decade. Uh, he was actually the youngest uh, driver to ever win uh, a NASCAR race in 2008, which is it's weird because I don't really, never really heard of him, and he has all these uh, accolades already, and he's only 26. But uh, unfortunately, he's in the news for uh, an incident, incident last week where in uh, his garage, his team's uh, garage. Uh, Wait, you saw 2008? Yeah, he was. And uh, he's like, 26 now? Yeah, he was like 15 or whatever it was. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting. And the youngest, and that was in 2008. Mm-hmm. And that same year, he actually received Rookie of the Year in 2008, uh, which is uh, very impressive. Uh, but unfortunately, he's, he's now being known for being involved in a uh, – well, it's investigated as like a hate crime where in his, in his teams, because uh, drivers have teams, there'd be a, a couple of guys in the team. And this is Richard Petty, who's, I know him, he's like very famous from uh, oh, back in the day NASCAR. And there was a photo that became uh, floated around on Twitter and Instagram where it was a, a basically it looked like a, like a noose. And the controversy is that it's a no, no, no. It was reported that there was a noose. And after the whole investigation and they brought in the FBI a couple of days ago, that's when the, the photo was put was put out of um what the noose or um the garage pool as they say it was, uh looked like so that people could, you know, make their own interpretation. And actually NASCAR was the one that put it out because NASCAR, it wasn't Bubba Wallace. As the first thing you want to get clear, it wasn't Bubba Wallace that asked for this to be investigated. They inspected the garages um, before, you know, I guess Bubba Wallace arrived and they found a garage. They claim it's a garage pool, but it was fashioned in a noose. And, um, right. and he, Bubba yeah. wasn't there because uh, the quarantine, uh, COVID. So basically he wasn't even in the, in the area. Uh, this all came out after after the investigation, which was, uh, I believe, it was Thursday. So we're almost almost a week ago. Uh, so, but that's really interesting because NASCAR is uh, more popular in a certain part of, all over the country, but more like rural areas, you would say. Yeah, they uh, do they do races um, in the West Coast. They do races in um, Las Vegas. They do some races here. Um, in upstate New York, but as, uh, and they've done races in Connecticut, but as I've said before, um, there's certain parts when you leave the metropolitan areas of the Northeast, there's certain areas in the suburbs or basically um, the outer way places that definitely have, you know, that, that, um, that racist, white supremacist, type of fan base 
Um, so I don't know what the demographics are of um, Watkins Glen, but Bristol, Connecticut, um, I don't know what the demographics are there, but, you know, that's the area where ESPN is. That's where their home base is. All right, that's more towards uh, Massachusetts. Uh, but, yeah, there's also one in New York, upstate New York, uh, Saratoga Springs. Uh, and then on Sunday, yesterday, from when we're recording, a Poconos uh, race happened, and uh, yeah, so Pensilvania. competed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Poconos uh, just outside of uh, the uh, Pennsylvania area. But he placed 20th, and uh, that's that's where basically where he's going. Because uh, NASCAR season is from uh, February to November, and it's about like 40, 40 races. And overall, we're like halfway through this year's season, this cup, the spring cup. And Bubba is around the 2021 mark so far for the, for the whole year. So he's still on track for – uh, what he was uh, going yeah. for towards like uh, top, already. It's a top 12, I think, that, that are in, like, the playoffs. All right, top 12. Yeah, you accumulate uh, – I think, like, 10 years ago, or they changed it where, like, they started doing uh, points, like a point system. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, like, your top 12. So he's, like, 21st. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he can like, still go on. It's, like, another uh, – it's, like, halfway through the season. It ends in November. Uh, but, yeah, so – that was going on last week. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I know that June, especially June, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, uh, Confederacy and like Southern culture uh, iconography and icons are uh, really uh, coming under fire right now. Mm-hmm. And like like you were saying, like we are in the New- we're in New York, and if you go like 20 minutes out from where we live, like you'll see the, the Confederate flag, like. Um, it's not just like a southern thing; it's like a rural thing. And uh, so, basically, the fan base you would uh, you would assume um, is looking being is, is questioning the legitimacy of the news or the role, the, like the controversy. And on Twitter, you see a lot of people are calling like fake news, and it's very, very like, yeah. They, a lot of people are um, comparing it to um, Jesse Smollett. Uh, yeah, from, from a couple of years ago where that was clearly something that was um, fake and made up. But, I mean, I had to look into it because there was a lot more context as far as Bubba Wallace goes. Um, for one, he's the only black or person of African-American descent because he's mixed race. He's black and white um, driver in the NASCAR um I guess this is um, is it the next uh, the Sprint Cup? It's the Sprint Cup now, right? That's like the to- yeah, Sprint Cup is uh, it the is. top level. It's the Sprint Cup. Yeah. He's the only black driver involved in that, and you know, obviously, with the George you know, George Floyd's death and Black Lives Matter and a lot of protesting and seeing a lot of the change as far as it comes to racism in the country, uh, he was you know in the forefront of asking that the Confederate flag not be flown at NASCAR events anymore. And NASCAR uh, backed them up and supported it. And they finally, um, after, you know, how many years, because I think NASCAR has been around since the 40s, have finally banned the Confederate flag. 
so obviously, you know, people will probably be pissed off at that because the other day at the same race, I believe, somebody flew a plane with um the Confederate flag and it said defund NASCAR. And if you look at the comments on news reports saying that um they were banning the flag, a lot of people were upset. And then this situation happened with the news. Um, and what, from what I've heard from a lot of people is that, you know, sometimes people would tie a rope or something in some sort of way to, um, you know, pull the garage door down. But a lot of people would say they would tie it in different ways. They would pull, tie it in a knot. They would tie it into um, like a ball string, you know, something you could just pull down and when they did the investigation, I think it was like 1,600 stalls and only 14 of them used the, the, the rope pull or used a rope to pull down the door. And Bubba Wallace's was the only one that was fashioned in a noose. And if you look at the picture, it definitely looks like a noose. It looks like something you hang somebody with. So I don't think exactly. it's it, I don't think it's like totally unfounded, and again he was not the person that initiated the investigation. He didn't call the NASCAR president down and say you got to get the FBI in here. NASCAR somebody um, that was inspecting the stalls found it. That person told their boss, their boss told their boss, and eventually got to the president of NASCAR, and. The president of NASCAR called in the FBI to investigate a, a hate crime, and eventually they found out that that's, that specific um, rope had been there since last October. So they they said it, it wasn't a hate crime specifically towards Bubba Wallace, but what a lot of people are questioning are is is why you know they use that specific method of tying a rope and if it was if it's so ingrained in the nascar culture to just walk by um a rope being tied in a noose fashion that they kind of completely ignored it between last october and now right so there's a lot of backlash coming from uh the majority of the fan base for nascar uh but nascar to their credit are trying to be uh, more progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and already, uh, so in the 311 Speedway in North Carolina, the uh, website, their Facebook, were promoting uh, Bubba Nooses. They were selling it. And this is the post on Facebook Marketplace. It says, buy your Bubba rope today for only $9.99. But yeah, it was on Facebook. And Facebook. they come up, yeah. Uh, they come with a lifetime warranty and, and work great. So immediately, um, sponsors just cut ties with the the, the speedway. Um, a, a, con- a, a concrete company in a local area, they cut ties with them. They don't, they're not going to work. Uh, the Carolina Sprint Tour, they cut ties. They're not going to work with the speedway for the remainder of the season, which is a lot of profit loss for the for the, the speedway and you have another six months going on, you know, and how many events they would have. Uh, so 
basically, uh, I don't know many fans of NASCAR, uh, but the the people with the money are pulling out, um, and they're siding with uh, basically, you know, like Bubba and more of the progressive movement of kind of moving away from the old past of NASCAR. Yeah, so, and um, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when we talked about um the NFL, I mean not the NFL, the MLB and the NBA restart, you know NASCAR is supposed to be like a major sport, and you can't be a major sport and still carry these um backwood, uh hateful Southern pride Confederacy characteristics yeah. about you and have that in your fan base. So if you're a person a NASCAR fan, I'll tell you what, how about you guys start your own uh, race car league back in these little dirt tracks and these small little venues, maybe like the one uh, you said that's selling these bubba nooses. Yeah, Winston-Salem area. Exactly. And you start, um, you don't have your races being shown on ESPN and Fox. You have your, your races shown on you know, closed circuit TV, public access TV, because that frame of mind is not, is not popular today and it won't be popular going forward. Things need to be changed. And finally, like I said in the last episode, they are being changed and I'm happy for it. Right. Because NASCAR is worried about next season as well, because they already, uh, are going to smaller venues now, like speedways, compared to like the Daytona and the bigger uh, state stadium environments. They're going back to the more ones from back in the day, which happen to be in more rural areas, not like a, a major city like uh, um, Daytona Beach. But they're going to be going into places where um, I want to be. I don't want to be prejudiced, but they they they're going to be probably running around with the Confederate flags because uh, it's not as Metropolitan, it's not a metropolitan area. They're gonna be going into the old school venues from like the the sixties and seventies and eighties of more of like the Wild West days, and uh, obviously NASCAR is trying to maneuver them themselves into maybe like the top four or five sports in America. Because I know they always say it's like baseball, the NFL, and uh, uh, NHL is arguably you say that's like the top four or five sport mm-hmm. NHL. And I think recently NASCAR actually. Uh, move past uh, NHL uh, in popularity and uh, income and revenue. So, you know, every sport is, is, is dealing with it now, but uh, so basically this is, this is why Nestor's in the news now and it's a, it's a public uh, image uh, problem. And uh, I think now more people are noticing NASCAR, but it's like for the wrong reasons, which is, yeah. which is a shame because uh I was saying that uh, Bubba, uh, Bubba's uh, records, like, you know, he, he, in more of the minor league NASCAR, he came out when he was the youngest ever. And now he's, now he's known for this now. And he's not known as, you know, he's not like a mainstream, he's mainstream now for like sad reason or bad reason. So. Yeah. And then you want to, you want to cross over to different audiences. Like you're not going to attract me being a, a, a black person to watch your races uh, when there's only one black racer, and on top of that, something like this happens, and you don't show support. 
for our black racer and your fan base doesn't show support for our black racer. But the NA, the the NASCAR has done the right thing by putting their arm around him and seeing his side and trying to be on the right side of history, which they hadn't done um, up until this point. Because up until you know a couple of weeks ago, they were allowing people to fly a flag that's a symbol of white supremacy and it's a symbol of uh, suppressing and oppressing black people. I don't care how anybody tries to paint it because it's not Southern pride, Southern pride because we're all Americans. You can't fly that flag and fly an American flag at the same time. That was a group of States that decided that slavery and white supremacy was so important to them so important to them that they didn't want to be a part of America again. And that's what a lot of people want to to put on display. It's not Southern pride. It's not uh, Dukes of Hazzard with the General Lee anymore. Like, fuck that flag. That flag is like a Nazi flag. It's an Iraqi um, uh, Saddam Hussein flag. It's an Al-Qaeda flag. It is... It's a symbol of an, an, an American enemy. And as long as you fly it, it is un-American. And you can't fly that flag and at the same time criticize or hate uh, NFL players for kneeling during the national anthem. And that's my view on it. Right. And it's, it's kind of weird, but like, it's 2020, and I feel like we're talking about um, MLB in like the forties with the desegregation of the, of the different leagues. And this is 2020. So it's kind of, um, I mean, it's happened before in sports and we're seeing it again now in 2020 where everything is coming. Like 2020 is all about this. So NASCAR is, uh, is, uh, not untouchable also. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah like so but despite mm-hmm. yeah, real quick, um, so he, he got, he was 20, 20th uh position and all they wanted to talk about was how does he feel about the controversy and everything and he just said um i i this is not i didn't bring this to to attention i don't want it to be the focal point he's standing tall he's standing he said he's standing proud despite the uh the whole investigation so maybe and as the summer progresses uh people people will know more uh about NASCAR and Bubba, and maybe you'll you have like a ten year old uh, young black kids are watching uh, NASCAR now. So yeah, not only that, but for Bubba Wallace, like obviously I'm not gonna watch you know two or three hours of people making left turns, but I know your name now as an African American person. Mike knows your name as a progressive white person. So now you have all these people they may not watch, but now they're supporting you and they will know Bubba Wallace's name and we'll we'll root for you. And we want you to do well. And NASCAR is putting their arm around you. And they did that. um, They pushed his car to the starting line or something the other day, the entire uh, field, the whole NASCAR field. And it was a symbolic moment because it's something, like I said, it's a sport that literally 
up until two weeks ago would let people come and fly a Confederate flag and be as racist as hell. And two weeks later, every single racer is helping, like literally the only black driver helping push his car to the starting line. And it was symbolic and it's huge. And it's probably something that we don't think is huge now, but 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, it'll be a huge moment. You know, Pee Wee Reese walking over to Jackie Robinson um, in Crosley Field in Cincinnati in 1947 and throwing his arm around Jackie Robinson. You know, he probably never thought like that would be an image that's probably one of the top like five images in the history of the sport. But just him showing his support to like the only black player, the first black player, it became so huge. And a small gestures like these that um, make such a big statement. And I talked about it in the last episode. You know, a lot of people are complaining because, you know, black um, characters being voiced by uh, white actors, they're leaving those roles, racist images on products such as Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and Cream of Wheat. They've decided to distance themselves from that, and people are complaining because they're like, you know, we need social justice and police reform. But like I said, those things are on the government and they're on the police department. And as you can see from our um, our, our PBA, the what's that? The Police Benevolent Association, like their yeah. union, like those people aren't going to change. Like it was like a group of like fifty to sixty white officers, and they were basically basically crying because for the first time in their history, people were holding them accountable worldwide. Like, this is not even just America, because there's protests worldwide in different countries, worldwide in different countries. So it's going to take a long time to change the people that actually can change. But I tweeted it out yesterday to um, someone I followed on Twitter. You can't win the Super Bowl without regular season victories. So even though you're not seeing the importance of Cleveland Brown being voiced by a black man or Aunt Jemima being uh, rebranded as a different kind of um, pancake batter and syrup. Like, that's a week one, week two win. And you have to get those wins in order to get to the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl will be a society where you start looking at people for the content of their character and not the color of the skin like Dr. Martin Luther King says. Well, the old uh, the old saying is it's a it's a marathon, you know. And yeah, these things aren't going to change in like a day, but they're changing. I never thought these things would change because out of over the last ten years, we've seen so many videos of black men being killed by the police, uh, black men being killed by civilians like Trayvon Martin and Ahmaud Arbery uh, this past February, and you know, those type of things never made Aunt Jemima or, you know, Family Guy decide to change who voices their black characters. But 
finally these things have been done and they don't happen overnight. Uh, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King knew that. Like, think about this, the bus boycott in Mississippi, right? That was 1955. The, I have a dream speech was 1963. The civil rights act was passed in 1965, 1966. Around that time, yeah. Exactly. So that's something that took 11 years. Or it took, I want to say it took 11 years because, uh, you know, obviously this stuff has been happening like throughout the history of, you know, African people being brought to America through slavery, through Jim Crow, through all of these things. But I'm just saying like, as far as demonstrations are done, 1955, the Birmingham bus uh, bus boycott uh, with Rosa Parks, and then 1963, I Have a Dream, 1965, Civil Rights Act is finally passed, and the Civil Rights Act was passed, and we are still seeing people's civil rights being violated today in 2020. 40, 55 years later. So, I mean, it's going to take time, like, but you got to, like, take these small, these small wins. Because, like I said, it takes regular, you got to win games in your regular, in the regular season. You got to win games in the playoffs in order to get to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl. Right. And that's a good, that's a good point. Um, But but the last thing I'll say about NASCAR is uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm white and NASCAR is predominantly a white fan base, but I just, I'm not into cars, but, uh, I also was just kind of put off with, uh, the, the culture, I guess, uh, that I, inter- I, that I saw in NASCAR the last, you know, since I was a kid. So I'm like, not even me. Now I was to pay attention more because I feel like, all right, they're trying to, they're trying to, they're trying. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then but then you have someone else, uh, they like cars and everything. And hey, hey, um, I, I I see myself now. So representation matters. Is that's what, that's why people don't, they don't think it's that's that important, but it is because I would I wouldn't uh, like in the NBA. Like if there's like a white player, I'll maybe oh I like I see I notice him more too. You know, so I, I understand that from uh, the future, investing in the future, and we'll see. Yeah, and you want these leagues to represent society in general you don't go certain places and it's just strictly white people you don't go certain places and it's just strictly black people i mean if you just walk out on the street you'll see different people of different races so you want these leagues uh to represent that like obviously it is black people that could drive fast and make left turns uh maybe more will join the join nascar and uh, Shog, when me and you were growing up in the, in the '90s, Tiger Woods completely took over like golf, and that was like a big deal. And he was biracial. Um, and now you see a lot of yeah, golf. golf is actually like a sport. I started like uh, having an interest in, in um, from playing the video games. Not only that, but getting to know white people when I was in college that played golf. So that's how I got interested in that, and. Hot shots, hot shots with PlayStation, right? Remember that game, that golf game? Hot shots, that was great. Uh, Yeah, yeah. 
I just remember so, yeah, Tiger so, Woods because me and my me, me and my pals we um we still play it. I actually got a hole in one one time on a, like a par three or a par four, and I'll I'll never forget it. And I play with Rory McIlroy, like a dude oh, from yeah. uh what's that Ireland or Scotland? Uh yeah, I should I should know this, but uh, I think yeah I think they had the uh, every every summer they have Ireland has their uh, the Republic, Republic of Ireland has their uh, open. Mm-hmm. And I think he won it like last year. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite. That's my there. favorite golfer. I love Rory because when I started playing on Tiger Woods, he was about like 22, 23, so he was my age. And it had a commercial where Rory, a white guy from Ireland, um, he was watching, uh, like you said, Tiger Woods. It was it was a Nike commercial. He was watching Tiger Woods do his thing and mimicking Tiger Woods. And then the commercial ends and like he he's actually playing Tiger Woods in like a PGA tour. So yeah. it, it's it's crazy how representation works because you know you get somebody like Tiger Woods, um, a non-white person, and has somebody uh not you know white people and non-white people would look up to and it's just crazy how that works right and uh the last thing i'll say about the nascar bubble wild situation is uh his mother was on like a radio show or a podcast and she was saying that uh this isn't the first time uh if it was actually intended for that but uh like obviously road rage you know like you're freaking driving around 400 laps people they would bubble would get into it with people and apparently it, it was a drop of a hat. They would uh, use slurs and like the N-word and everything, just like, just willy-nilly. And so now maybe um, people will feel guilty or like, pieces, you know, people that are prone to being bigots or whatever are, are going to be embarrassed. And it's not, it's not safe anymore for them to do that. And then you have the next generation who, that won't even be in their their mind, you know. So you have to like. It's sometimes you have to do it by force and and pressure. Keep the pressure on. And I guess now I'm gonna keep an eye on NASCAR. Now it's uh it's obviously trending more than a yeah. And it was a video of usual. A, it was a video of a lady, um, somewhere uh down south with the Confederate flag, uh, mm. yelling at like Black Lives Matter um protesters, telling them like yeah I'm gonna I hate you and I'm gonna teach my kids to hate you. And, you know, this is something that's been gone on since 1865, 1866. These are people that are bitter that they lost a war uh, that lasted four years. Yeah, and, the uh, po- uh, construction era. Yeah. And, and after a generation later, Jim Crow laws became basically... And actually, like, the Confederacy didn't... You know, people had basically forgotten about the Confederacy up until a film that we talked about a little bit, um, right. Birth of a Nation, 19- came out in 1916. So between yeah, like yeah, 1916 right. and the Great Depression, this basically um, fanfare for the Confederacy came back. And since then... That's where all the, you know, this isn't about, like, hate. This is Southern pride because that's that's what they use it as, you know. This is Southern pride, and 
if you think about it, between 1916 and 1939, Southern Pride was basically telling black people where they could drink water from, where they could eat, where they could sleep, where they could do this and where they could do that. And basically that has carried on all the way to today. And it was a crime up until like the 60s to have uh, uh, interracial marriages. Well, well, I think a black man couldn't marry a white woman, but... Uh, no, you couldn't marry, period. Um, uh, Loving versus Virginia in 1967 or 1968. Uh, that was a white man who married a white woman and there's a film about it and I want to watch it one of these days. Um, yeah, it came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, so 1967, I two years oh, after my father was born and three years before my mother was born and white men couldn't marry black women, black men couldn't marry white women. So it just shows you how recent this is. Yeah. Um, anything else about NASCAR you want to talk about, or uh, we can also get into? Um, it's kind of related. Uh, it's entertainment. It's not a sport, but uh, there's a, the band Dixie Chicks. They are from now on. They're just the chicks now, right? Yeah, and so lady, that's like, lady Antebellum is just Lady A, you know. Oh, really? They did that too? Because uh, Antebellum is obviously the post-Civil War. Um, no, it's pre-Civil yeah. War. It's, it's the yeah, celebration yeah. of the South, and they just thought Gone it was the like, inappropriate. Gone with the Wind. Um, it's like an Antebellum film. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, from one side, you could say, like, oh, they're just worried about the money. But, you know, you said it too earlier, show that, like, the money, the backers are the ones who are gonna against the Dan Jemima and all that. They're they're afraid they're gonna lose money, but in the long run, it'll it'll, it'll influence uh, the general public who don't have a t- uh, stake in it. But they they will um, the images like the uh, will will not be there anymore. And yeah, and it's just uh, generational. The generational thing. Yeah, and it's just that uh, racism has been ingrained in our country so much so that unfortunately we have to use this phrase and the phrase is these things take time like you're not gonna wake up tomorrow and things are gonna be different you know uh we have a president right now that definitely stokes the racism flames and encourages racism and with 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 that going on, you know, it took four years, four or five years, including a campaign for him to build that base. And it's probably going to take like eight years to root that, you know, to root that base out. So it, it, it'll definitely take time. Yeah. So uh, it was 2013 was when the whole uh, birther movement kind of like took fire, right? Remember with yeah. uh, St. Obama's yeah. uh, citizenship. So he already started campaigning years before then he officially started in 2015 and um and here we are he, he, yeah i mean and real, I mean, you can real quick, say like real yeah, quickly so. uh, yesterday he tweeted out a video i think it was in a retirement community in florida and he applauded his supporters and it was his supporters versus anti-trump supporters or you know his, his Trump supporters versus 
anti-Trump protesters and literally the first 10 to 12 seconds of the video is a guy screaming white power, white power. And this is the president of the United States applauding that man for saying that. And then the next day he's acting like he, you know, he didn't hear that. And I don't understand that at all. And I hope that during the press briefings that reporters press, what's her name? Old McDonald, whatever her name is, the press secretary. I hope they press her and say, well, you're saying that he didn't hear that part, but it's the first 10 seconds. So how is it that he doesn't hear that part, but he heard everything else praising him or being anti-Democrat? He didn't hear the white power part, but everybody in the country heard it, but he didn't. Like, is white power something that's inaudible to him, something that he's deaf to? Does he have some kind of syndrome where he can't hear white power? I wish I wish, and I hope that was something that the few press members that they allow into that thing press them about. Well, I think he has a couple of syndromes. I think he has, like, dementia. So we'll yeah, see about maybe that. Maybe that could be it. And maybe old McDonald could have, like, you know, let us know that. But... You know, he's You're talking the, about a, is that Huckabee? Huckabee? Sarah Huckabee is still no, the, new, the new one. Oh, the yeah, little, I, the little do, the white um blonde chick. That's the oh, right, right. that used to be on CNN during the, the thing. You know, I'm glad we got to talk about this. So later on in the episode we're gonna talk about um Ken Griffey and his documentary, which apparently MLB doesn't want anybody who doesn't have MLB to see. So I'll have to fill uh Mike and I have to film Joel in on what happened on it, but it was pretty straightforward. So we'll just discuss the things that I found about uh, that documentary that I didn't like. Yeah, that was disappointing because, uh, well, you had to watch it live. MLB.com doesn't stream doesn't stream the docu, and they sold the rights off to Sling.com, and I'm not a Sling, I'm not a Sling uh, subscriber. And then uh, for the last like hour or so, we're gonna talk about the Undertaker special on uh, that's been airing the last few weeks on WWE Network, and talk about Undertaker in whole uh, his career, you know, retrospect his career as it pertains to me, Mike, and Joel. So stay yeah, tuned. Yeah, it was uh, that. it was uh, about five, it's about five hour. Uh, docu-series can't wait to talk about it because uh it's up there with a glass dance for me the way they the way they edited it and everything and uh uh i can't wait to we'll talk we'll break down each episode and we'll uh get joel's uh, opinion on it too i'm excited right, for that. and that's coming up next uh, we have joel here with us and we're gonna talk about uh the junior documentary and you guys couldn't find it anywhere right yeah, and actually earlier today, uh, I texted my brother and my uh, one of my buddies. They didn't even hear about it. They're like, "What?" And I'm like, "Exactly." And MLB they uh, bungled this one because uh, I don't think anyone really was that aware of it. Yeah, it's like so they can... almost don't want people to see it. Like I watch it wasn't it. replayed. Yeah, I would, like I watch. Um, I've been watching old like MLB games and like. You know, I have my my DVR set up to record like and MLB Network presents and stuff like that. So I I watch like those specials. 
So that's probably how I knew it because it's not on like commercials on like other networks. It's not being, I didn't see it on ESPN or anything like that. So it's like something hard to find. So that's an issue like with MLB um, on their own, like how are you going to sell the game? And like people can't find this video and the video wasn't even streaming on MLB.com or MLB network. Nope. I tried. I got the streaming thing. It was only just their shows and like old old uh, games, and then they said go to Sling.com. So I'm pretty sure MLB sold the rights like right away. You had to watch it when it was airing live. Yeah. You don't have a live TV thing on. I couldn't that. even. Yeah, I couldn't even find it like on on the web anywhere. Like nothing. Not even clips. Yeah. So good job MLB and um selling your game. But well, have, now there's gonna be a there's gonna be a junior docu too where he's gonna be complaining that no one saw it like <laughs> yeah it's like a third oh, a, like a thirty minute speech before it was like oh just so you guys know um like I had the show it came out on Father's Day but for whatever reason nobody saw it and that reason being that MLB doesn't really care if people watch this stuff or not uh and the but, Yankees and the Yankees. And right. I watched um I watched it, uh, I recorded it, and you know all of these like the, sports documentaries they always start off with um oh so and so came from like this small town and it's like someplace you'd never thought you'd like visit, but actually the place where they began where um Ken Griffey Senior and Junior were born. Denora, Pennsylvania, I've actually been to like on several occasions because uh, my best friend uh, who used to live in, he was born in the area, his town, um, another town and Denora, they made up like a tri-county city uh, area or whatever. So he actually got all his tattoos done in that area. And I, I've been with him to the tattoo shop like a few times. Um, in Denora, so I'm familiar with the area, and I know how like very out of the way. And if you never heard of it before this, like you wouldn't be the first person. So it starts off there, and it talks about him growing up and being a fan of um, I mean, being the son of a major league ball player. His father, Ken Griffey Sr., uh, played a lot of years with the Cincinnati Reds, won the World Series in 1975 and 1976. And, you know, they talked about how his father, uh, it was tough for him to be there for him, like, you know, while he was playing baseball because you're on the road, you know, for six months out of the year. And um, even though he grew up in Cincinnati, I think he eventually, even though they were born in, in Pennsylvania, they, he grew up in Cincinnati, uh, went to high school in Cincinnati. I think they made their home in Cincinnati, but his father um, moved from different team to different team. And, you know, as he went to these different places, it was harder for them to see each other and have like a, a relationship. But eventually Griffey was like, you know, a, a top baseball prospect. And he was drafted, I think, first overall by the um, uh, Seattle Mariners. He went to camp and, you know, it was just basically there to, like, showcase him, you know, as they do to, even today in spring training. Like, they'll, they'll invite, like, the top prospects, you know, not really thinking they'll break camp with the team. Uh, he ended up winning the starting center field job for the, the Mariners in 1989. 
and I believe like a year later they actually signed his dad. So it was like the first time like a father and a son were on the same team. And he plays uh with the Mariners um throughout the nineteen nineties. He was uh famous. Like you guys like I don't know about you guys, but you know, when I was a kid, like Ken Griffey was probably like the only baseball player I knew. Yeah, he was like growing up in the nineties, not like a Jordan, he was more like a Shaq. Like everyone knew who he was, you know? Yeah. Like he was the face of like non he was like a the uh general population, not like oh like a Yankee fan or like a Dodger fan. It was like baseball fan, you know. He was like the face of the sport. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we talked about it and and um uh, the last episode we had Joel on where we talked about Long Gone Summer, like people were anticipating him being in that home run chase in the 1990s. And they also talk about, you know, how like Yankee Stadium, you know, people say it's the house that Ruth built. So Safeco Field or T-Mobile Park, as it's known now, was built and the kingdom was demolished all in part by the popularity of Ken Griffey Jr., and uh, he eventually got traded uh, because he wanted to be closer to his family. Like uh, the same relationship ails and, you know, family responsibility ails that plagued his father's career, eventually plagued his career uh, later on with the Mariners. Because, you know, Seattle is like pretty far from like, most, you know, all the other states, even even the states closest to it. Like, um, Mike, you've been to Seattle. I haven't been to Seattle, so. Yeah, I was I was going to try to interject real quick. So when I went to Seattle last year, I went last year in 2019, and um, it looks like a, like a mid, like a, like a suburb, pretty much. Right. And then out of nowhere, like, you'll, you'll, you'll look up and you'll see the free, the Space Needle, like, right there in, like, in, like, a neighborhood. Like, not in, like, a, it's not like a city vibe. And then in that same area, they have uh, where the Sonics used to play. Now it's WNBA and other mm-hmm. events. I think they have, like, wrestling there, too. But they also had – that's where, like, the kingdom was. And I was like, this is where the kingdom was? I was like, whoa, like, this is bizarre. And then now – Yeah, because the, 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 football, the football field is, like um, – the football field, uh, CenturyLink field, where the Seahawks play, was built on top of – where the kingdom was, and then across the street, that's where the safe, that's where Safeco Field is. Yeah, most as, most as far cities as have I've, like, I've heard. Yeah, like Philadelphia, like all, every major sport, they're like right in the same area. That's kind of like a, the Meadowlands for us, like where all the like, teams were like right next to each other. But it's mm-hmm. like a more of a city vibe. Like Philadelphia, when you when you drive by Philly, you have like the Eagles, you have the the hockey, and you have uh, the Sixers. All you know, all right together. In the yeah, and here in New York, it's just like you know. All right, you live here. Here's Yankee Stadium. Go across the bridge there. City Field. Uh, drop to New Jersey if you want to see where the, Gi- the Giants and Jets play. Drop to Brooklyn if you want to see where the Nets play. Take the train down to 34th Street, Penn Station, if you want to see where the Knicks play. So it's like a, a different dichotomy for us. It's pretty like it's uh, planned. The other places are like kind of planned. Like yeah, you have the older yeah, cities yeah. like Boston, New York. So yeah, basically. So Seattle was, you know, obviously living. And it's like if, if like any if like they had all our teams in like one area, like it would probably take up like a whole borough or like half of a bur- borough to make like stadiums for each of them. If you think. Yeah, about I don't want to go long. I don't want to go long on this thing, but that's the pet peeve I have on like social media and like people making jokes about how like the Giants 
and Jets play like you know the Giants play like in Jersey, and they're like, hey, it's not even in the same uh, state or city. I'm like, it's literally like ten minutes from Manhattan. I was like, shut up, like you don't know what you're talking about. We're yeah, gonna not- build over. They're gonna build a Jets thing, but you have to tear down like all this uh, property. Yeah, real quick, Let's just back into to, it. Yeah, real quick. Like I saw a tweet the other day because um they I guess they finally uh finished the the Rams and the Chargers stadium in um LA where they're gonna have WrestleMania next year. And you know, that stadium has like a roof and it looks brand new and it's crazy. And then when you look at like MetLife, it's like why does MetLife not have a roof? Like why 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 is this what we get? That you know they're not gonna do anything else with it. But uh, back to the the Griffey point, it were it was there were so many points during the '80s and '90s that you know the Mariners really were like inconsequential team, and the Kingdom was like falling apart and it was old and it was dilapidated, and they were actually uh, gonna move to like different places. Uh, the one place was uh, Tampa, and they had a great season in 1995. Also, something we talked about in the last episode that, you know, this is the year that, you know, baseball basically had to win fans over. So you couple the fact that, you know, the players went on strike and the season was canceled and your team is about, you know, you you really don't, you're about to lose your team. So they really had to get Mariner fans like back into the team and they went to the playoffs um, on like a miracle run and actually during the season, Ken Griffey was uh, injured and he only took three in, in his rehab. He only took three at bats with the um, Tacoma Rainiers, the AAA team. You know, usually guys would spend like, you know, a week or a couple weeks in the minor leagues. He only took three um, at bats to rehab and he flew himself to Minnesota to rejoin the team. They went to the playoffs. They, um, beat the Yankees in five. They came back because they were down to nothing because the first um, uh, league divisional series, uh, I don't know if you knew this, Joel, but like the first league divisional series, um, like a couple years back, they actually did it when they added the wild card game, like at the end of the year, the lower seeded team hosted the first two games and then the higher seeded team hosted the last three games. So the Yankees won the first two games in Yankee Stadium which was Don Mattingly's um, first playoff appearance. Uh, and it had a famous play, the the double, where Ken Griffey scored on an Edgar Martinez double to win the division series, and he beat the Yankees. And, you know, that's an interesting story I'm going to bring up in a little bit. So in 99, they built Safeco Field, and then uh, 2000, I believe, uh, Griffey decides he wants to be close to his family. You know, Seattle said they had different trades on the table, and he basically told them, like, you need to get something done with Cincinnati. That's where I want to go. And I assume, like, the the Mariners felt they owed him a lot, and they sent him to the Cincinnati Reds. And when he went to Cincinnati, uh, that's kind of when his, you know, the twilight of his career happened. He um, was no longer the the Ken Griffey that we knew. Um, He was plagued with injuries. He ended up, I think, in 2007 getting traded to the Chicago White Sox for a spell. And he signed with the Mariners, I think, for the last, like, two years of his career. And he, like, um, abruptly retired in 2010. And they didn't talk about this, but he actually retired in Seattle 
uh, after a game in Seattle, and he drove from Seattle back to Cincinnati. <laughs> He's laughing. He's uh, yeah, yeah, that's a long it. ass drive. <laughs> I know, but that's funny. That's not funny, but it's like a sad thing. I can already picture it. That's what I would do, like an emotional thing. Hey, the private jet can bring you. No, I'm driving. What? <laughs> I'm gonna drive. Uh, but yeah, um, I remember when Griffey joined up with the Reds. Um, it was during the whole Yankee, you know, stretch. So I, that's the only thing I really watched was just the Yankees and the, and the, the postseason mostly. Because when I was younger, I was more not as – I was more of a casual fan, I guess you would say. Just the Yankees were always winning. So I would huh. just – I would watch it with, like, my older brother and my dad and everything. In 95, like, one of my earliest memories of, of baseball, uh, like, watching a game is the freaking play in 1995. And my brother was like looking down at me, and I said, "Like, what, what happened?" He looked at me, he's just like, "Close the door, close the door." Like, he, like I didn't know what the ramifications of like that was it that the series was over. And my brother was just like, "Close the door." So yeah, so Griffey um, was always a always uh, always something I remember from early on in my fanhood. Uh, What's your earliest memory, Joel, of like going to a game uh, or like watching it? Well, I just know I remember like young, young, young. This was probably before I even got into baseball. My father, my uncle took me to like a game. This was when Tino was still playing. Obviously, all the it's probably either '98 or '99, most likely. I don't remember the year because I was just so young. And that's the first time I've ever been to a Yankee game. I didn't really start becoming a Yankee fan until 2003. 2003 yeah. on until afterwards. That's when I started becoming a Yankee fan. Yeah, me too. Me too. Right? Like that playoff run. Yeah, yeah that, especially it. that playoff run when Boone hit the home run in the AL, you know, ALCS. Oh. That was like awesome. Yeah, that was but, like the best. And thing then in the world. when you when people talk, you go to games or you you watch Yes and stuff like that. And you know, Paul O'Neill is on there. And you know, back when Jeter played, you know, you you're connected to those '90s teams. So yeah. I wanted to to talk about like a part of the the Griffey documentary that that bothered me on several different levels he talked about a time when he was a kid because his father played with the Yankees in 1982 and 1983 and he was sitting in a dugout and a security guard came by and and told and told him and his father that uh George you know Steinbrenner didn't want anyone in the dugout he didn't want anybody in the dugout and Ken Griffey Sr. told him, like, all right, you know what? Just go into the clubhouse and, like, wait for me. But before you go, look over at third. And what he saw was Greg Nettles' son uh, fielding ground balls. So, I guess on top of that, like, he said there was a time, like, he was in a clubhouse and him and, like, a bunch of the kids were, like, talking. And uh, Billy Martin or somebody uh, pointed – you know him out specifically to tell him to be quiet or they were making too much noise and they pointed to Ken Griffey so I didn't really care for that because he the way he said it on the documentary made it seem like he was trying to like insinuate that like George Steinbrenner was some kind of like bigot and you know you 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 guys remember Steinbrenner while he was alive he never as much as he probably was domineering and like a very hands-on owner. Like, I think a bigot was probably him being like racist or a bigot was something that was, you know, never really conveyed. 
Yeah, but, I don't. I didn't get that from Stan Brenner. Yeah, yeah he, he's a businessman. Yeah. Yeah, and he does a lot uh, for like, but, the inner city kids in um. He does a lot for the inner city kids in uh, Tampa, Florida, and his his motto was always: if you do something good for somebody, and more than two people know about it, uh, you not you didn't have like the right intention. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but if something like that uh, is attributed to him, and on top of well, that, off the off the air, off the air, we talked about it yesterday that Nettles was also trying to get resigned or something like that. Remember? Yeah, so Greg Nettles, I'm not sure. I should have looked it up um, in the time that's probably since we talked, but uh, I I know for sure he was on the Padres team that won the pennant and went to the World Series against the Tigers in 1984. So we're talking about 1982 or 1983. So it's probably approaching Greg Nettles' free agency, one. So you want to keep him happy because you want to bring him back. And two, Greg Nettles was on the 78, 77. No, matter of fact, I'm going this far back. He was on the 76 AL winning um, pennant team that got swept by the Reds. He was on the 77 and 78 teams that won the World Series. And then he was on the 81 team that went to the World Series. And another thing they tried to, you know, you could probably point to is that Ken Griffey was on that 76 team that swept the Yankees in the World Series. So perhaps the team or Steinbrenner or Billy Martin had like animosity towards Ken Griffey for beating them in 1976, but that wasn't what was portrayed on the documentary. On top of that, like I said, he he won World Series too. So you're probably looking at it like Greg Nettles won him a World Series. Ken Griffey Sr., Lost him a World Series, so who are you gonna try to? Who who would you want to keep Poppy more? That's a good point. I didn't actually really think about that. That's a great point. Um, but then apparently the docu just jumps back into like '95 after that, right? Yeah, and um, it's something I brought up about both both um because we actually wanted to do both documentaries um when we did Long Gone Summer, but you guys hadn't seen it yet, and we were gonna find it. So now we're talking about it, but. I found it kind of boring because in Ken Griffey's career, like when you watch documentaries, you want to see, or any type of movie, you need some type of like conflict. It can't just be a straightforward like biography. So I guess the conflict that they wanted to use was, you know, that time he felt slighted as a kid by the Yankees. And then they tried to make it seem like he used it as motivation for the rest of his career to beat the Yankees. So, when they beat the Yankees in in that 95 series and it was reported in the documentary, they made it seem like he, like, like yeah, like, I had, like, an extra edge and an extra motivation and I beat them. And, like, you know, they neglected to talk about how, like, uh, that was basically the first round of the playoffs. They went to the ALCS and they lost to Cleveland. It was also the first time they had that round. It was the first, in 95 was the first year they had that round, right? So basically, it would have just went straight to the AL, right? No, yeah, they would have went straight to the league championship series. So that was the first – Um, the Yankees were the first AL wild card. And the uh, the, the Mariners were the AL um, – were the AL West champions. But, you know, they neglected in the series to – you know, it, and, and they also made a point, like, he never wanted to sign with the Yankees. He never wanted to get traded to the Yankees. 
blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if you know what happened after 1995, you know, for the rest of Griffey's career. Yeah, we kind of, he just kind of, well, the Yankees got him locked pretty much. Yeah, like, that, it, yeah. we weren't hurting. We won in 96. Yeah, we were good. We won in 96. Uh, won the wild card in '97, and we lost in the the division series in '97. Won the World Series in '98, '99, 2000. Mm-hmm. Went to the World Series in 2001, and lost in the division series to the Angels 2002. And then we went to the World Series and lost in 2003. And then I don't know what happened in 2004. I'm going to me. Uh, I yeah, forgot what happened. I'm going to. I was going to chime in. I was gonna chime in because I thought I remembered, but then I was like, "Nah, I forgot." Yeah, yeah. And then the the Yankees basic the Yankees went to the to the playoffs every year from 1995 to up until 2008, and then 2009, 2010, 2009 we won the World Series. 2010 we um get the wild card, but we had like the second best record in in the American League. So. For the time that Ken Griffey played, like the Yankees were way more successful, and like Ken Griffey's only big playoff moment was that double, or scoring on that double. He didn't even hit it; he scored. Oh, but, but also, by the way, this reminds me of kind of like the guy who's like, "Nah, I didn't want to date her anyway." Or the girl, yeah. the girl who like broke your heart. Nah, I wasn't even gonna. I wasn't gonna. I didn't want to marry her anyway, man. Uh, I could feel him being upset, like. About his father and everything, but you—you like, oh, you a baseball player. You're supposed to want to play because you want to win. Like, yeah, not exactly. He never, your father. he never won any more. He never won any World Series. No, uh, no other series he won. Exactly, and and on top of that, like what should be highlighted more is like that team had on the hitting side, Alex Rodriguez. They had Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Alex Rodriguez, Jay Buhner. That 95 team still had uh, Tino Martinez. It's like, why didn't you accomplish more? You had Randy Johnson as your ace up until 1998. Why didn't you accomplish more? Why wasn't that talked about? That would have been a nice part of conflict <clears throat> for that series or maybe for that documentary. Zach, maybe there's a Zack Snyder type uh, recut where it's just like shitting on Griffey the whole time. Not shitting on him. Just saying like, you could get all this opportunity, but you didn't. Maybe he said, no, no, no. We're going to talk about the Yankees. Yeah, that's like, going to be the thing. I, I, I could and maybe not. that's why they buried it. That's why they didn't show it. Every, you know, yeah, and I kid you not. Like, after 1995, like, they basically glossed over, like, the rest of his career. They talked about him getting traded and him going to Cincinnati. But did Cincinnati do anything? No. Did he win any more MVPs? Did he take Cincinnati to the playoffs? Obviously not. And um, That was I, a decline anyway, Cincinnati. Yeah, and my like thing is – if anything, if anything, I'm watching our documentary. I have like great respect and great like love for Ken Griffey Jr. Like my favorite number is 24. It's not because of Ken Griffey. It's my birthday, but my favorite number is 24, and I was his number. So I always, you know, if I ever like got traded, you know, to the Mariners. If you know my love of um MLB the show, if I ever got traded to the Mariners, I was like, yeah, you know, I gotta give up my number. I gotta pick my other number because that's Ken Griffey's number. And it's just like now I'm looking at it, I'm like Ken Griffey was kinda like boring. Like I mean it's amazing with all the injuries and stuff, like he ended up with six hundred and thirty home runs and all of those are clean home runs as opposed to the people of his era, so he should be commended for that. 
all the injuries too. Like he, some people would have did the the easy route and like try to do like ACH or whatever and just re you know yeah, all the played, injuries. Play clean. And uh, another funny thing about not funny but interesting is that he actually back in the day in the late eighties early nineties. I think we mentioned this that uh, his trading card was like the most valuable rookie card of that era, and then now is worth like not even a penny. So that, that's a sad uh, analogy for how like everyone had all these high hopes and then. Yeah, I mean, but for him, like he still ended up being like the the um at the time of his election, he had like the highest like voting percentage, and you know, in the years after he got um. You know, Mariano was the first unanimous, and then Derek Jeter only fell, what's that, like one one vote shy of being yeah, unanimous? 99 out of 100, right? Yeah, so, but I, like I said, I just found it weird that they used that, that Yankees thing, and it was just like, all right, well, like, the, the, the Yankees, like, did pretty well without you, but uh, just to wrap this up, I want to ask you guys, what would you have rather have? The Yankees get Ken Griffey Jr. and end up with the same season results as the Mariners did with him, or just take history for it as it was where the Yankees won five World Series and but all I know is the Yankees had Yankees. We had Bernie Williams. He's a good center oh, yeah. fielder. And you know I yeah, love Bernie. Bernie's we my favorite fine. Yankee. We, so, so yeah, we Bernie's my top four all the time. Sorry that. Yeah, Bernie's my top four. Yeah, me and Joel yeah, we went Bernie. to his. Who cares? Yeah, and we went to his Jersey Jersey retirement ceremony. Uh, Bernie Williams. It was on my and birthday. Maybe he'll, <laughs> maybe he'll hear this and invite us to one of his shows when the bars open up again. Is see him play guitar with uh, Paul O'Neill on drums. Yeah, <laughs> I always wanted to see that. He'll probably do it at the Hard Rock. Mm-hmm. Like, that that restaurant by the Yankee Stadium. Yeah, they might. All uh, right, so. Mm-hmm. Well, this doesn't have to be any part of it, but uh, uh, we you mentioned 2003, the Aaron yeah. Boone, and uh, you know I'm into like making movies like my whole life, and I actually have recorded the whole uh the whole night. I have it on like tape. I taped it when I was a kid. I think yeah. You can't see it, but this is 2003, wow. and uh, that was like the highlight of my like. I have the whole game on my phone. Like I'll I'll start watching and out of nowhere. It's like I, I had like, my whole family that. reacting, to it. like fun stuff. What you said, Joel? When they won, when they won, the whole Heights was like they was having a party in the street. Everybody in the Heights when they won that after 2003. I was like, everybody was just like honking horns. Everybody was just having a party, burning Red Sox um hats. In yeah, the I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, that's what I like. Just <laughs> another level. I mean, later on though, the Giants win for me. Like everyone went down to the to the bars on on the on the avenue. Like that was like. But, uh, yeah, 2003 was a huge thing. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about The Undertaker um, next. Uh, stay tuned for that. Okay, so the WWE Network, they released a series of episodes uh, documenting the final, the last ride of The Undertaker. And uh, I only started watching this about a week ago. Um, but this is the type of content I was expecting from the WWE Network when it started in 2014. Back in the late 2000s and early, in early 2010s, um, I got back into wrestling because of like shoot interviews where um, it was basically just the guy, the people um, out of character and just like talking real. It was just, like a shoot over mm-hmm. to like the kayfabe, kayfabe character uh, 
element of the of the industry. So basically, uh, it's a five part series, and it chronicles the final five years. Now that we know it's the final like five year, five to six years of the Undertaker's uh, in ring career. And guys, uh, we all watched it, right? Yep. Yeah. Joel, oh, you, Joel, you watched all the episodes? Yo, you see that tie? Yeah. You see that tie Undertaker was wearing? I had that tie at my communion. It was like a big, I had a big ass one like that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm one of these days. I'm gonna dress like that for Halloween. I don't care if I'm not tall. You gotta get the um the wig. Nah, I'm gonna trust me. I'm gonna all of that. <laughs> my hair wasn't already white. I, I could maybe look like a miniature version of him, but no. But so basically, uh, Undertaker was always like one of my favorites. Um. I started watching wrestling with my older brother. We went to the local video store mm-hmm. like in our neighborhood, and we would just watch like uh, all the all the VHSs, for, the, the the wrestling WWF VHSs from like late '80s to like the I guess it was like '91, '92. And um, but then I watched their uh, Saturday morning show for the first time. It was in 1992. I vividly remember watching it. Mm-hmm. It was The Undertaker. And Undertaker was the first person I saw like live on TV or you know on like a new episode. And then he was always there for the next thirty years. And there was always jokes made made about Undertaker saying that like he took it way too seriously. He was always in character. Uh, there was a thing where he didn't go out to do the uh, Owen Hart tribute because he didn't want he oh it's not my character to like to, to do that. So that people always like talked about that. And this oh, this series, that. yeah, that's what happened in ninety nine. So, this series uh, pretty much broke the wall down, um, and it's more so Mark Calloway, the man behind the character, and it's him being very affable. Like, like wow, this is like one, this is like one of my favorite versions of the Undertaker. This guy, Mark Calloway. Wow, I didn't know he was funny and. Uh, yeah, that's his whole. He he even said it before that the American badass character that he loved. He loved doing that character more than The Undertaker because the American Badass Undertaker was more him, like Mark Holloway. So he always enjoyed the American Badass, the motorcycle. That was really him. So he got to actually be himself and play a character at the same time. Yeah, I just love how like polite he was. That's, that's um, a small little takeaway I got from it. Like Every time you saw him like entering an arena or exiting the arena or him in like a hotel or something where he had to deal with, you know, like staff, like he took his time and he would shake everybody's hand and say, thank you. Um, even like the one part, I don't know if you guys saw like the Kurt Angle one where like yeah. Vince gives him a hug and he says to the, like the camera crew, he turns to the camera and like, get out. And like, Undertaker, <laughs> even the one time he had to get the, the camera crew out of his room, he was like, all right, everybody, uh, could everybody just please leave? You know, everybody out of the room, please. And it was just like, wow, this guy is like, uh, like, like a stand-up, like, dude. But, you know, like Mike said, the thing I got from this was like, you know, it kind of felt to me like, you know, if you've worked – and let's say you work like 14 days straight and you have to come in and you have to like drop whatever is going on in your personal life and you have to maintain a type of attitude while you're at work. And then come day 15, you're finally off and you're home and you get to be yourself. 
Like that's how it felt. Like he 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 got to be here. It was just like he put in like twenty, was it thirty years of work, and he finally got to like go home and like decompress, and he got to share that moment with all of us. Exactly, and it kind of started off. Uh, I'm not sure if it was like six months ago or a year ago, but Stone Cold had him on his podcast on the WWE Network, and that was like the first time you got to see like him him as Mark Galloway, just see the the guy. Yeah, and actually, uh, I, my bad. Go ahead. No, no, please, Joe, go, please. I, I remember like he was on. I think it was either Fallon or Kimmel, Undertaker, like way back, and he like he was they were Mark Holloway in the whole interview. That was like one of the first times I see. I remember Undertaker just outside of his character, the Undertaker on that. I, I can't remember it was either Fallon or Kimmel. It was one of those interviews. But wow, you actually, I, yeah, I think I just remember, but he came out dressed as himself, but he was like, yeah, taking the in front of himself, like he came out acting all serious, but then like he like winked at the camera. I remember that, yeah, that might yeah. have been like Jimmy Fallon when he first started, like in 2009, or maybe it was Jimmy Kimmel earlier in like the early 2000s. Yeah, I don't remember, it was, it was one of those, it was one of them. It was I'll check it out, Kimmel. yeah, we'll check it out, and then we'll, uh... yeah, so, um. What was you you guys' like first experience uh with Undertaker? Um like like the first time you saw him and like you you guys' thoughts. Uh Joel, you could probably start. Yeah. I can't remember the first time, but like I remember this his whole Ministry of Darkness angle mm-hmm. when he was just like real demonic. That scared the hell out of me when I was a kid, like honestly. Like and I don't get scared that easy. Yeah, me too. Like, I remember actually. just, like, turning the TV on as soon as... Every time I saw his face, I just turned the channel, honestly. Like, that's how scared I was. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't see him when he wrestled. I didn't want to hear him talk. It was just, it was just wrestled. And then I remember actually going to, like, an actual event. It was, like, moment of my childhood. But this is... He was already in his Undertaker, the American Badass persona. So I actually got to see him live, like, in person. Was it at the Garden? Yeah, it was at the Garden, but it wasn't was it? like Raw SmackDown. It was like a random... It was like a live show. Was it the one that Donald Trump was at? Nah, nah, I don't know. Oh, all right, because I was at that live show, and I think that's that's yeah. where I seen Undertaker. When I, I seen it, it was, was like, like a random... That was like 2000, 2000. Yeah, two, like 2000. Now, this was like like when he just got started, probably like early 2000. Probably even 1999. Okay. Probably yeah, like, I, I think... <clears throat> Sorry, I think American Badass started like uh, November 2000. No, no, November 99 or because he was American Badass in one of the video games in 2000. So I think it just happened. It was I like think a new it was thing. 99. This was just one yeah, late 99. No, actually, it was 2000 because he left because he had like an injury, like a really bad injury. And I was like the last you see him as like the dead man until um, WrestleMania 20. But he came yeah, so back like, at Judgment Day as. um. The American Badass and like the little vignettes, like people thought, like didn't know what it was. You thought it was, um, you thought it was Undertaker coming back, or you thought Sting was finally coming to WWE. That w- there was a couple of times they did vignettes that it seemed because you know him and Sting kind of had like the same kind of like aura about them, and it was a couple of vignettes that they would use to like hype up like somebody coming and be like mysterious and. Um, I think some of the times, Mike, you would probably notice better than I did, I did. But these were some of the times, like, they, they were actually, like, no, negotiating with Sting. And they, like, f- it fell through. So they ended up still using it for, like, Undertaker. Because Undertaker, you know, wasn't leaving WWE. 
Yeah, so at that point, um, th uh, this was like right before the the six month, maybe nine months. It was a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. It was like sometime in 99, Undertaker got hurt. And uh, I think he just, he I, I didn't even know about this. I read about it like not too long ago. He won the belt one night, one night on Raw against Stone Cold after Stone Cold beat The Rock at 15, I think, WrestleMania 15 or something like that. And yeah. then uh, he like, lost it or just gave it up and he was gone for all that time. And this is when he was at Pinnacle, Weird Undertaker, Ministry of Darkness, like kinky swinger. He looked like a weird guy with the ears with the beard and stuff. It was yeah. a weird. It was very like, especially for us, like like that. He was a kind of a weird dude. You know, then, um, but when he came back, he was American badass and all that stuff. And uh, that's when I got back into it again a little bit. And uh, yeah, and then he did that for a couple of years. Um, then he went away again for about a year, and then. Uh, then at WrestleMania 20, um, there was another more vignettes, and they were like hinting at this character coming back, and you didn't know if it was maybe hey maybe it was Sting in 2002. Uh, Sting's contract was up mm -hmm. at the Turner, so he was available, and this was late 2003, mm -hmm. um, and they were like hinting at this character coming back, and it was Kane though. Kane was like saying that he's uh, he was hinting at the Undertaker, and then. After about a year or six months to a year at WrestleMania 20, uh, Undertaker showed up again back as that the character, the Undertaker, and it was, yeah, that's, um, a good, that's a good four years. Actually, if you think about it, like both times, like he 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 when he became, which I guess I don't know if they did this by like design, but like when he became the Ministry of Darkness Undertaker, he had lost a buried alive match to Stone Cold at Rock Bottom um, in December of '98. And then he came back as the Ministry of Darkness, Prince of Darkness, um, leader of the Ministry of Darkness. And then in 2003, uh, Survivor Series, I think, he was in like a buried alive match against uh, Vince while he was still um, big evil, American badass, uh, Undertaker when he had cut his hair short. Right, right. And yeah, yeah. Kane, inter Kane interfered and buried him, and it set up like the storyline for him to come back. So both times, he changed character when he went in and when he went out. It was done in a buried alive match to like bury the character, so to speak. That's a great. That, that's a great point because um, if you think about it, so the Undertaker character is the most well thought out character with like planning. Like in, when we get back into the documentary, everything was planned like a year in advance months in advance, many years in advance. And right. each episode, there's five chapters and each chapter highlights a certain point in the last pretty much seven years, six or seven years. Right. And uh, so episode one, episode one is, first of all, let me just say in episode one, I, I, start, I put it on and it's Mark Calloway walking into a hotel and it's Jim Cornette and Jimmy Hart, and right away, like they're all like looking at him, like like the little children, and they're all smiling, and he's doing these jokes. Hey, Santa Claus is here, and I work one time a year. And, you know, he's like, yeah. you know, making fun of himself. They're all laughing. You know, he's he took over the whole room right away. He goes to to, to check him, and his opponent that night is, or that weekend is Roman Reigns, and Roman Reigns sees him, and then uh, Undertaker goes, "Hey, man, you can't wait ten minutes. Keep kayfabe. The hell, yeah. man!" And like Roman Reigns like laughing and stuff. And I was like, all right, here we go. So then I, like, I leaned back. I was like, this is going to be good. That's like when I was like, this is going to be a good, 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 uh, good, 
good content. Like one one of the um things I thought about when I was watching it was just how much reverence he had for the character. It was almost like a different um person, and like he respected it. And I think like all of these times, like he walked away, um, and it seemed like he was retiring, and he came back. I don't think he came back just because it was just like, oh, I just want to keep doing it. I, I like I changed my mind. It was just like whatever match he wanted to end with just didn't fit or didn't seem um it didn't fit the the way the Undertaker ends. Like you're this this big character, like you've been doing all of these show stopping matches. Like the same I think the same way he felt and he talked about it a little bit with Shawn Michaels, like Shawn Michaels and him like put on a great second match to end Shawn Michaels' career and he just didn't have that. Like when he did it in Orlando at WrestleMania twenty four with Roman Reigns, like um, was that 24? No, it was actually 30. 30. Yeah, so episode one is about that. So I was going to ask Joel, do you remember watching the Roman Reigns-Undertaker match? That was 30, and uh, Undertaker lost. No, I don't don't recall calling that, catching that one. That's the one when he left, like, all his gear in the ring, and he kissed um, Michelle on the way out, and that was, like, the first time. I haven't seen the the whole match. I haven't seen. Okay. That's the and I don't even yeah, remember I know, the I match. The match. I don't remember the match being like as bad as like he saw. But I mean, if if you're involved in it and you want it to be a certain way, and you're like a perfectionist, of course you would have strong feelings, um, about how the match goes. And you know the match didn't go, uh, the way he wanted. And like it was like a year later, like he walks up to Roman Reigns at um, I think a Raw or something. Or not? Nah, it was actually was it at WrestleMania the next year you know when what? he didn't wrestle, and he, he was still like really I, like um yeah. All right, Mike. I misspoke. Um, so thirty was when Brock Lesnar defeated the streak, and thirty three is Roman. So there was two years where Undertaker got wins again. Yeah, so I stopped I watching misspoke. after the streak ended on like WrestleMania. Yeah, so that was That's 30. the reason why I watched WrestleMania. WrestleMania thirty was Brock Lesnar because I I was at twenty nine in New York and uh, Meadowlands, and it was against CM Punk. Uh, and then there was Brock Lesnar, and then I think it was Bray, and then something else, and then they had Roman Reigns. Yeah. And, like, I, the thing I didn't even realize was, like, that match against John Cena in um, 34, uh, two years ago. I didn't realize that was supposed to be, like, an actual match. Like, I thought it was just, like, a quick, like, um, you know, special appearance, like, squash match because, like, I don't think – uh, Cena got like much offense in so you come to find out you know all of these little matches that have been done since like 33 have all been matches where he actually really was trying to like end his career and it's just like the matches like his body just gave out and you know for people that talk about like wrestling being fake um, as opposed to like the, the other sports I think with uh, this show, you're starting to see how real wrestling is as compared to other sports. It's like a theater, especially when you talk about, like, how he plans the matches and how he plans, like, the programs. Like, there's an art to winning and losing. That's, you know? why, that's why Vince himself, like, he called it sports entertainment. Like, it was a whole thing of, yeah, behind yeah, cause it. Like, you... It's a whole, like, legal thing behind it. Yeah, I'm calling it sports entertainment. Like if you think about it, like 
if you think yeah, about it in in like in in um I'm, I'm gonna let you speak my i just want to finish this point if you think about it in like the art of winning and losing right like in wrestling like you have to have like a build-up right so i i hate to bring it up because you know as i said before i hate this series but you know boston winning in 2004 it doesn't seem as dramatic without them losing in 2003 and basically um, watching us win for the last like 95 years or however long it took for them to, to get the 86 years for them to win the World Series. So in wrestling, you know, obviously it's scripted, but there's an art to winning and losing and it's like putting teams over. So, I mean, it's the art to putting the other wrestler over. So, you know, like the Yankees like had been putting Boston over for all of those years and then you know boston being a, a lot more successful than we have been since then you know fans are starting to turn on them and starting to look at them as like the prima donna in in some cases yeah i, I can go into a whole tangent but that's the point of me not doing tangents anymore <laughs> but uh i think all of all of like the political scene now is just kayfabe and it's like performance now too but uh i think that wrestling has really infiltrated everything up until the White House was Trump. Uh, let me go back into, you mentioned John Cena, the John Cena match. That's mm-hmm. chapter two, episode two. Yeah. So that, that we're going to jump into that. So after the Roman Reigns match where he lost, came back and John Cena kind of um, uh, tried to pull him back in. And uh, he made, so he started calling, I think he actually was like, he called him Mark. He, he called him Mark Calloway and all that. Like, I know they did that this year too, but like he was the one saying that, uh, you're not done yet, you know, like, come back. And uh, I, me and everyone else that I talked to, they assumed that he was going to come, uh, that Undertaker was going to come back as the American badass, and he was going to come back more as himself. And this was 2008, that's two years ago. Obviously, they had a weird thing. There's a meme of uh, John Cena, like, like finding out that Undertaker's in the building now, and he runs back, and then they had the match. It was like a six-minute squash match. Yeah. And... Um, but then after that, um, like, you find out that he he felt good during the match. Even though it was a quick match, maybe they were nervous because during the Roman Reigns match, Undertaker was in so much pain. Like, he could barely, like, stand. Uh, he had, like, no – because years earlier with Brock Lesnar, he doesn't remember that whole day. So he, he blacked out, like, the whole day from, like, the pain and everything. But with the Roman Reigns match, uh, he felt bad and everything. With John Cena, he felt great. And they're like, all right, well – we gave you five minutes. You look good. Um, and then in that same episode, they started exploring the, the personal relationship between uh, Undertaker and Vince, and Vince McMahon, which is one of my favorite things is seeing um, um, like the gorilla position is where like the spot where you right before you go into the arena and they have all the producers there and stuff. Like mm-hmm. every year they showed him talking to either Vince or Triple H. And uh, of course me, I'm always like, is this, is this a work? Like, like are these, I did playing a character now, but then it was, it, you can tell it was real. Like it was actual emotion watching this stuff for like 30 years since I was born. Like uh, that's the, the thing I take away from this whole documentary is how special it was to see these moments that you thought you would never see. Uh, you know, that's why the WWE network uh, came through and then I felt, uh, uh, felt great watching it. Yeah. Like with Undertaker, uh, um, what I, the the idea or theory I came in okay I came out with in watching this was like Undertaker is like Madison Square Garden 
is like the building and like different things will come and bring different people in but like the building itself is like famous and it's famous on its own so like in WWE you know Hulk Hogan would be the face of the company Bret Hart would be the face of the company Shawn Michaels Stone Cold Steve Austin John Cena The Rock um whoever the hell it is now uh Seth Rollins I don't know but you know Undertaker is like WWE like he's the foundation well he just signed a contract yeah. for like what, 15 years Undertaker signed a contract Undertaker signed a contract with WWE for 15 years uh, but I don't know if this is this is before the whole announcement where he had officially retired uh but I think he's going to be you know doing these type of things for the next 15 years which is I think he would be like 70 at the time so yeah, I, I mean, he probably, like, work with, like, the kids, you know, with the young guys yeah. and stuff like that. Like, you ambassador. saw him doing at the end. An ambassador, uh, kind of like Shawn Michaels works in NXT, that type of deal. He'll, he'll probably be, like, a commissioner or something. Like, Vince will bring him back. He'll be, like, commissioner of Raw or something. No, I couldn't say that. <laughs> no, no, I I he say has that. the fish off. Like, yeah, you could do that. I wouldn't, I'd love to see that. I'm going to hit up Vince and be like, yo, do that. <laughs> I was personalized. <laughs> personalized. Uh, so in chapter three and chapter four, uh, it was kind of like a transition because I had these notes about how uh, uh, I had chapter three. So chapter three was after they found out that Taylor can work again. And so he had a series of matches with uh, him and the Brothers of Destruction, him and Kane against uh Triple H and Shawn Michaels, the new version of DX, which was terrible. Um, uh, I beg to differ. You like the new one with the glow sticks? Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm I like nostalgia. I'm you, you like it, okay. I like nostalgia. What? I, I like nostalgia. I know, but it wasn't nostalgia. Well, I'm happy. And that it wasn't like top of the card nostalgia either. Like they, they, they took like they were working with like mid card people. It was, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. That was a good time. Actually, no one really talks about it. Like, I remember watching like 2006, 7, 8, 9. Like when ECW came back, they had that whole like the new ECW. That was a yeah. fun time. That was a great time to be watching. Like when um, well, I kind of like figured out it was gonna happen because they started um, selling a lot of like DX merch at the time in 2006, and I bought the DX DVD and I got a DX T-shirt with it, and this was like in April. And then in June, like, um, Shawn Michaels had been out for a while. And they sent, like, the Spirit Squad to beat uh, Triple H up. And somebody, like, super kicked, like, the last, like, Spirit Squad dude. And it was Shawn Michaels. And it was, like, the biggest – it was, like, the most, like, excited I'd gotten for rest- from wrestling since, like, the Attitude Era. So I-, I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, it definitely got stale, like, a little while later. But, you know, to me, both guys actually, like, put on great performances individually. Like, it rejiggered Shawn Michaels and it rejiggered Triple H um, in the late 2000s. Because, like, I personally feel like Shawn Michaels' uh, run in 2002 to 2010 when he retired was probably, like, better than his initial run in WWE. Uh, You know, that's, like, a polarizing thing. No, because he lost a lot. He only beat Ric Flair. Every, every other time he lost, he won the belt, like, you know, in the Tusk and Three and all that. Yeah, but, but he uh, put on, like, great matches. Like, Jericho, I, for, I, I, like, stumbled upon, like, I forgot him and Kurt Angle 
put on one at WrestleMania 21. Oh, that's and that was like a a great match to me. That's what. Uh, that's when I started rewatching again. So like in 2002, um, I stopped watching. Um, I guess I started, you know, I'm that age. I started high school and all that stuff. So I like I stopped watching, and then I started rewatching it in like uh, 2005, right before WrestleMania 21. And it was just like I watched that. That was back in the days when like it was like not to they wouldn't stream it. So I taped it on VHS, and then the next day after school I came back and rewatched it again. The next day I watched the match like again on Monday before Raw. It was that like hype feeling you used to get when you're like not being jaded. Like I'm a little jaded now with the wrestling, but Kurt Angle, Shawn Michaels was amazing. And then he had the next series of matches that we that we can talk about. And he, he wrestled Ric Flair, and then he did his thing with Undertaker. Yeah. Uh. So what about episode four? What you got for that? So episode four uh, was apparently it's the second to last episode. So basically they're they're pretty much implying that Undertaker doesn't have it anymore. He missed WrestleMania 35, uh, the one in the Meadowlands. Um, I, I forgot that he was even there. I was there, but I don't even remember he was there. And he was, but then they showed the footage. He was backstage. He was he was there, but they didn't use him. Yeah. And, and apparently was... there's controversy because yeah, FOMO. He, <laughs> no, he signed with uh, StarCast, which is uh, run by. Conrad Thompson, who's a wrestling podcast, who's like a shoot interview, uh, kind of like revitalized a lot of the a lot of wrestling in the last couple of years. But he signed the Undertaker, Mark Calloway signed mm-hmm. to do a uh, meet and greet, and he was getting like forty grand an hour or something like that, something a lot. It was like a lot of money for like five hours. It was just like an, an insane amount. Yeah. And um, and then they made an announcement. Uh, WWE said that Undertaker and, and Kurt Angle, who was also booked were were canceled. They weren't going to be there. And um, basically, people are because they always want to stir their shit in wrestling. They're saying that he got punished for signing with Starcast. So yeah, he was just that. there in the background. Yeah. So then, but then the next night on Raw, uh, Undertaker shows up again, and he starts to, he starts another uh, another a feud. Where, but in 2019, which was, it was last year, instead of WrestleMania a moment. He had like a bunch of string of uh, of dates throughout the rest of the year, uh, but in the documentary they're implying, which if you watch the matches, they were not good. They were not good. Uh, I think in 2018 he also had a match with the the Brothers of Destruction and Shawn Michaels, but that's where things uh, started going bad again. Where Triple H uh, tore his uh, pec, one of his pecs, Kane. So then Kane's mask came off from the match and they were like trying to like cover it up. He could have just went with it. So basically like after that great match he had with Cena, well, he felt good. Maybe not was that entertaining, but he felt great. He had the hip replacement. He felt great and everything. And then for some reason it went back down again just by bad performances. Nothing on, not solely on his shoulders, but like things went down again. And that was, that was episode four. They were setting up the, the end, which was chapter five. In chapter five, um, this is the most recent. Right, right before they stopped having live shows with like fans and everything, they were hyping up AJ Styles versus The Undertaker. And AJ Styles kind of did the whole thing that Cena did a couple years ago, where he was calling out the man, not the character. Um, and then obviously, we're we're still in the pandemic. That hit, and they stopped doing live shows. They started doing studio shows. They started doing pre tapes, um, and then they. 
they started doing these cinematic matches. And that's where we got the Boneyard match. Joel, did you see the Boneyard match this year with AJ Styles? No. I stopped watching wrestling a while ago. So basically, they filmed it, and it was like cuts. And it looked like a like a, like a B movie, like an action. It was movie. like a movie, yeah. It was yeah, but it was like kind of like a movie. It was like a made for TV movie thing, you know. I, mean, I saw it in the documentary. Yeah, oh, so, right. Of course. So, so like Joel, just to let you know, like they um, you know, they were supposed to have WrestleMania in Tampa, where the Buccaneers, the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers play, and obviously with COVID, they couldn't do that. So they decided to have it at the the performance center, which is where they train the wrestlers now, or uh, train new wrestlers. And it's like a small venue. They have a ring and like an entrance and stuff like that. So it's very like intimate. So they decided to have WrestleMania in that venue and basically all the pay-per-views since um, in our venue. It's like and, a training facility for like a football team, basically. Right. Yeah, but like the thing is, um, so this WrestleMania, they decided, you know, with such a big card and, you know, people basically being at home, they would split WrestleMania up um, over two nights, which is something they probably should have been doing for years. So basically all the matches were in here and they didn't have like crowd noise or uh, any type of thing. So you have to be really invested in the match to like enjoy it. No so, huh? No atmosphere, no. Uh, yeah, no so dirty. like, yeah. So they decided to have that Boneyard match with Undertaker and it probably worked out in his favor because obviously since it was like taped, like he could take breaks. And I think he talked about it, too. Like, the one thing he didn't want to do was, like, sit down or he didn't want to stand somewhere because that's when his, his body started to ache. So they were able to do something, like, really, like, good. And him and AJ Styles, like, they, they put on a great match. And it probably was, like, the one, like, redeeming moment of WrestleMania. And it just, like, I thought I, I tweeted out at the time when um it came out that, he really was, like, done. I tweeted out. I said, he probably went out the, the way you would expect Undertaker to go out when WWE is going out, going in, going through some, like, troubling times. Like, he still put on, like, the best part of the show and put the company on his back because, you know, even if you – if without that match, like, you know, you'd think you, – you, you wouldn't even remember anything else that happened at WrestleMania. It was not, like – that like noteworthy noteworthy out outside of the boneyard match so it, it, like i said it, it it was really special that like his last match was like the only redeeming part of uh wwe's biggest show great point because uh he actually he actually was introduced in wf as like a character the undertaker which was kind of like the epitome of the wf at the time like a character like you know like an undead mortician. Oh, this is silly. Not some guy named like, you know, just some normal guy in trunks. But he turned that into one of the greatest characters ever or the, one of the greatest uh, performers ever. And if you go back to 1990 when he deb debuted, which is a perfect bookend, uh, he was nervous that he was going to be given this like really silly gimmick. And then he showed up in Stanford and they showed him like that he was like a zombie type thing. And he was like, oh God, what did I do? And then he turned it into, you know, one of the most famous... Uh, one of the greatest uh, performers characters of in pro wrestling history. Yeah, he did. He re he established that. Like it's it's possible. You don't have to be silly 
is possible. And then at the end, he's like, all right, these matches are possible, and they're probably going to be going forward afterwards. All right. Hey, so my final thoughts on the last ride, the Undertaker docu on the WWE Network. It really, it's the last chapter in Undertaker's story. But I think Mark Calloway is going to be around doing his thing for a while now. Um, it really introduced me to a, more of the man behind it. And I laugh, and Shug, you'll love this. Remember that part where he goes, uh, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. And he quoted, uh, he quoted, uh, Mike Corleone, he, he, he quoted The Godfather. And I was, I yeah, was literally like the only good five seconds of that movie. <laughs> but that was a story for no, another day. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can do a whole thing on shitty sequels. Yeah, that was great. Um, hopefully, I mean, they were filming that for six six years, like a, a long time, and like they apparently have all this footage that they don't use. Yeah, amazing. And so I think we'll be old men. I'll be, I'll, we'll be like seventy something watching these clips of uh, random uh, clips and videos that they have. The whole thing. Um, so yeah, so I actually know someone who um, worked as like an intern or like just like a just has a like here and there thing digitizing all their uh, their video their vhs's and their master tapes and they have like a bomb shelter full of this stuff they have like all this stuff and we'll, we'll i hope that the w network keeps producing and releasing all these uh behind the scenes things because at this point i don't let's no live wrestling until next year all right just call because it's not good at you know, just call it just relax let's watch the old stuff we had with a different take on it and that's it when then we'll start up again next year yeah, and one thing I didn't get to talk about with Undertaker, and it actually, it was in the closing moments of the, the final chapter. Um, he began, or he talked about the fact that he has two families, you know, his family at home with his kids, uh, you know, his youngest daughter. And I know he has a couple of other, other kids that weren't in it, I guess, because they're they're older. And his wife, Michelle Cool, who's a former WWE star. And he also said he has his family in the back, uh, the guys in in uh, the other wrestlers um, who actually like looked up to him, and he was basically like this leadership leader. Um, he was like this locker room leader, and you know he talked about how you know he was kind of reluctant a reluctant leader like people just gravitated towards him and like not to like toot my own horn but you know that's probably been like my whole life because my father one thing he always told me was not to be a to to never be a follower to be a leader and you know that never meant me like going into places and like yeah I run shit in here you know what I'm saying it's just like the personality I have, a lot of people like look towards me to be that kind of like person to to guide other people for whatever reason. So I related to Undertaker in that way because you know a lot of times like people gra- gravitated towards me for whatever reason and looked to me to look towards me for re- leadership. So I understood where he was coming from, but when he talked about um his family, his second family, the guys on the road. He said, you know, I'm going to miss you guys. And some of you I miss already. And the first two names he brought up were um, members of his um, Bone Street crew that are no longer with us, uh, Brian Adams and Yukazuna. And 
you know, Mike talked about how, you know, the Owen Hart thing, he wasn't able to, like, come out to the ring because it wasn't, like, part of his character. So it was, like, the first time he actually got to, like, you know, mourn those guys with us. And I actually seen um, Adam Graves had um, a little segment where he asked him about Yukazuna and, like, uh, The Undertaker was, like, you could tell he was really, like, choked up and he was, like, holding back tears thinking about, Rodney Anoy, as we know as Yukazuna, and he was just talking about how like he was such a good friend and I, I just um it touched my heart. Right. Um if I go back one more time. So they had Andre dock you a couple years ago and Vince mm-hmm. McMahon, there's a moment where he just starts like it's just like crying, you know, he's just, just like bawling. And he's just like, I gotta go, I gotta, I gotta go. And then he did the same exact thing with the Undertaker. Which was like, I guess that shows that like Undertaker and Andre were like one of his. He came up with the Andre. He's the same age, and then Undertaker maybe he sees him as like, his on his level more so than like other people that he just sees as like people he can use and like business of you know Hulk Hogan and all that. He probably just sees him as like a business partner. The Taker seems more like personal to him, like maybe as like a, like a uh, they're like 15 years apart, so maybe like a father son thing or like a uncle thing. But it was mm-hmm. the same exact moment where like Vince is really like. I know people hate on him and all that, and but like he's these docu's that I've seen that are like legit and like shoots, like he's really like breaking down the wall, uh, that the facade that he has as like you know Mr. McMahon and all that. So I maybe think, we'll see more. I think the reason for that is like, I mean, it, it's probably been understated, and I guess probably because now they actually won the Monday Night Wars, that is being understated, but you know. During those times, 1996 to uh, 1999, you know, that Monday Night War, it was really a rough, rough time. And he was losing a lot of his, like, top stars to the other company. And, you know, Brett was probably the biggest star in WWE in the new generation, and he left. So for people like Shawn Michaels and the Undertaker to be loyal and basically be, you know, the flag bearers of WWE, you know, it probably, it really means a lot to, to him, uh, Vince McMahon. I mean, even if you look back at like the click when they did the curtain call, uh, the guys come, came back into, came behind the curtain and Vince told them, cause I read Shawn Michaels book. He said to, to Shawn, that meant a lot to you. Uh, so it means a lot to me because, you know, Sean was sticking around, like he wasn't following his guys. So it just shows that, um, like Mike said, even though we see like this very like hard in and like asshole side. And we also talked about it with like George Steinbrenner as domineering and like narcissistic as these people see him at a time. It's like loyalty is very important to them, and whatever you give to him, he wants to give back. I agree. Loyalty is another thing uh, that popped up a lot, and those the girl position shots of him with uh, Undertaker and, and Vince showed that the human side behind Vince. But yeah. so, Joel, you got um, anything else you want to say about um, the last ride? That's that like that Undertaker. The whole persona scared me. It's just not that. It's his ring performance, too, was awesome, too. He was a big guy, but he, you know, walking on the ropes was awesome, seeing that. 
I was always fascinated by that. What what was that move called? Like walking old the line school. or something? Like, old, school. Old, school. Yeah, old school. There we go. They brought old it up school. in the doctor. I don't want to cut you off again. I don't want to cut you off, but they brought yeah, it up. Like, he saw someone do it, and he was like, I'm going to steal that when he retires. <laughs> he said that? Yeah, that's yeah. Now that's Undertaker. He, popped, he made that famous. And like, he did it until the very he used end. To, he used to fly over the ropes, too. And then, again, this is a big guy. Undertaker's like, what, 6'10"? That was always awesome to watch. Yeah, he's just going to be missed. Like, as a wrestler, honestly, like, and then he, well, I'm 30 years old. Well, I'm about to be 30 in August. He's been wrestling before I was alive. So that's another crazy. No, he's right been there. wrestling. All, well, yeah, he's been wrestling yeah, for than, uh, longer than we've been alive. But he's been in WWE yeah, for longer. our entire lifetime. Yeah. He started, in, he started in November. Six. Well, he, he debuted as Undertaker. I, I, oh, I know he, he was in WCW, but he, he Survivor Series 1990. And we, we were born in 1990. Mikey was born like a year earlier. We're all a year. Yeah. You said yeah. you're, oh, you're about, oh, you're the same age. Okay, all right. Yeah, so we're yeah. all a year. Yeah. So he's been around like a whole lifetime. And, you know, he, he talked about that a lot too in the special that, you know, his in-ring work was also part of the storytelling. Like he would start off very slow and methodical, like an undertaker or a mortician would be um and a dead man would be and then he would like turn it up to 10 and start moving around and stuff like that and it's like looking back on his career like that's definitely how he rolled yeah that was a great point um i love that where like you, you go very so slow like like a halloween or mike My- michael myers then i know he would just pick it up there and just do the whole thing with the the whole glove thing you know the thick like the next thing that's like the contrast with kane because kane was always like definitely michael myers like slow, he never like really sped up. Undertaker, I don't know where he just came at you with this like burst of energy. I like, woke. Yeah, and it's interesting you brought up Kane because if you watch Noam um, Kane's special, you watch um Mark Henry's special, uh the Broken School series with uh Stone Cold Steve Austin, like all of these people, uh Undertaker brought under his wing. Like if you think about Kane like, a lot of people like to, like, protect their gimmick. Kane was literally written to be a duplicate of The Undertaker. Kane has, like, Undertaker's entire moveset. I think the only thing that Undertaker, that Kane does that Undertaker, um, the only thing that Undertaker does that Kane doesn't do is um, the Hell's Gate, uh, which he uh, brought into WWE later in his career because of um, the popularity of the MMA and the the old school, I never seen uh, Kane do the old school, but Kane has his kind of like Kane, <laughs> like Kane's old school probably would be the top rope uh, clothesline, the big ass okay. clothesline he does from the top rope. You ever seen him do that? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that's mm-hmm. like probably like the top rope maneuver that they they have their own version of. Yeah, but he never really. Uh, so so this is a person as like basically copying his own gimmick. Like if you told like Hulk Hogan. Like, all right, you you're gonna we're gonna bring in like uh the evil Hulk Hogan or Hulk Hogan's evil twin and he's got like your entire moveset. Like Hulk Hogan wouldn't like allow that to happen. But he took um Glenn Jacobs, mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. He took him under his wing and you know, Kane's now a Hall of Famer whenever Kane decides to actually hang it up. I think a evil Hulk Hogan, I'm thinking of well character Hulk Hogan 
But it wouldn't be the Fu Manchu. It would just be a soul patch, maybe. Just the inverse of it. <laughs> Something like no, that. It would just be a black Hulk Hogan. <laughs> oh, uh, Hollywood Hogan, just like darker Hollywood Hogan. So no, it would be a black Hulk Hogan. It would have to be somebody Hulk Hogan would hate. <laughs> Hulk, Hogan, Hulk Hogan's been putting over the sun for years, man. That dude mm-hmm. has always <laughs> got the shade going. But, uh, yeah, so then we also um, – let's get into the the Bubba Wallace um, yeah, so so segment. I wanted to get you guys um final thoughts on everything. Um, Mike, I'm gonna start with you, and then we're gonna go to Joel, and then I'm gonna do mine about Bubba Wallace, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and uh The Undertaker. Just to wrap up the show. Yeah, so NASCAR, uh, I never was into it. I don't. I'm not a big car guy. Um, I'm not a big individual sport guy either. I'm not really into golf. Um. But I have a background and I understand it. Obviously, you know, I, I have a limited knowledge, though. But um, I didn't know they went back. I didn't know they were doing, like, empty uh, stadiums and empty speedway shows or uh, events. Um, but when this all happened, uh, I was like, oh, here's another thing. You know, let's, oh, let's see. Uh, my takeaway is that um, one side immediately accused Bubba of pulling, like, like a, like a, uh, a hoax. Like, yeah, yeah. I was just saying, like, it happens. That maybe it happened a few times, but like, uh, like a hoax, and he's he adamantly he's under a lot of pressure, being like the only person there who has that like that that background, um, and he was basically not like trying to be a victim. He was saying that like, no, 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 like, um, I didn't know about this. It was an investigation. His mother talked about it, saying that he had he confessed or he uh, confided in her saying that he felt he had these interactions throughout his career. Like we said that he at like 15 or 15 or 14, he was already doing uh, the minor league version of NASCAR and he was like winning races at that age back in uh, like 12 years ago. And um, so now basically this whole story is like attributed to him now. And uh, he basically is trying to say that he's, he's not trying to be a victim. He's like standing tall and then you saw like a camaraderie, camaraderie, camaraderie. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of uh, all the other, because like it's a, it is a team sport. I know it's per, it's also like individuals, but it's a team sport. You usually have like four, four guys like in like a like a squad, and uh, we saw that the whole procession that they did with him like backing him up. And I think going forward the rest of the summer, I don't think uh, it's going to be more like negative. It's going to be positive where people are going to be paying more attention to it, and uh, we were saying this, me and Sher were talking about this, where, like, maybe people are going to start watching it more that were maybe put off by, like, the culture of NASCAR and motorsports and, and that. And, you know, so basically I think in the long run it will work out for the majority, not just a segment of old-school population of uh, fans. Yeah, and, Joel, you got uh, – oh, no, Mike, uh, what about Ken Griffey and – uh, okay, so Ken Griffey on Undertaker. Uh, with Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, growing up, he was always like kind of like a face, unofficial face of like baseball. I never, I didn't get to watch the documentary, but eventually I will. But I pretty much got the the tone of his uh, his ideas from the last few years. He always seemed. I remember like ten years ago, didn't he have that whole awkward um, interview? Didn't he have an awkward interview where like he was being a real dick to uh, the interviewer? Remember that? Mm, so there was nah, a thing where he was just trying to be. No, nah, I, I, I can't remember, but maybe he did. 
Okay, I, I don't want to elaborate. Great. And then, Joel, you, you got any thoughts on Bubba Wallace, Griffey, and Undertaker? Uh, really, with uh, old Bubba Wallace thing, this is extremely sensitive. Like I said, if people are calling it a hoax. And even if it is a hoax, this is like it's a real sensitive moment for that to happen, especially with everything going on, all the protests. Like, why now? Even, like, it can't be anything more than, like, if it's if it's a prank, it's just a stupid prank at this point. Like, they really got to do more research, um, you know, their research on that. Like I said, I saw on TMZ yesterday that they released another picture of the actual rope, and it was actually tied into a noose. Like, this was a real noose that I saw. Uh-huh. But, you know, you know, hopefully, you know, they're more on... Um, investigation goes into that and they really get down to the bottom of it because it's just a crazy time for any of this to be going on honestly too much racism going on i don't even watch nascar this is the first time i heard of bubba wallace or anything so there you have you know if it is a some type of prank or hoax that's just horrible and as far as you know ken griffey jr again i didn't watch the docuseries or whatever it was I couldn't really find it other than the fact that he said he didn't want to be with the Yankees because what happened with his father, I found that to be hilarious. Because it's like, you know, he's a baseball player at the end of the day. You're supposed to want to play. The point is for you to play, play your best and win, help your team win. And he missed that because he did, you know, for some whatever reason that he didn't, um, what was it for his, um in the dugout? What was it against you? It was uh, that right? Yeah, his uh supposedly his fa- allegedly his father was told by a security guard that George Steinbrenner didn't want anyone in the dugout, but George Steinbrenner did allow Greg Nettle's son to Greg Nettle's son, right? Yeah, to, to field ground balls at third base. Uh no problem. Yeah, like I can understand like like that happened as a kid, but like once you start playing the court, the game you're supposed to want to play for the best team everybody wants to play for the Yankees like you're the only one that doesn't want to play for the Yankees but whatever that's more that's more me being a Yankee fan and getting into my feelings but mm-hmm. yeah other than that you know he obviously he has one of the best careers in baseball he's an actually, awesome man. sorry guys I actually thought of something about Bubba uh like micro like a microaggression or like an isolated incident now that's gonna like basically just over overloom like the whole sport now and if someone did it like as like a some asshole who works in a garage like did it as whatever now it kind of like it, it makes it seem like the whole like 99 of the rest of the sport are like anti-bubble but i think and some of the future uh race car drivers of uh black or like, mixed race uh getting involved which is i'm sure if you look at the minor league nascar thing uh races there's it's the you know he bubba's just like the he's like the main one now like he, he he's like the highest uh most accolades but uh i think nascar the powers that be at nascar are showing that they're 100 percent going forward of eliminating anything that's negative uh the, the the culture that they were harboring and everything is eventually going to dissipate and like uh, we're going to transition into a new, new era. It's the same thing like with like in baseball in the 50s, 40s and 50s and 
uh, basketball in the 40s and 50s and everything just kind of gradually changed. I think yeah. NASCAR will go in the future because uh, NASCAR is a very forward sport because it's, you know, technology. It's not like a, it's not like a, it's not tennis, you know, it's like a, it's a machine. So yeah. that's the sport of the future. Things like that. Yeah. So Bubba Wallace, um, hopefully things will change and the NASCAR fan base will be more representative of, you know, open-minded people. Like it doesn't even matter if you're like Republican or Democrat or Trump supporting or anti-Trump, like just the fact that you'd support uh, African-American just basically trying to be the best racer that he could be. And the more, the fact that, NASCAR is inviting a new audience in by just being embracing, embracing to him, you know, throwing their arm around him because, you know, as we said before, like it wasn't Bubba Wallace that saw the news. It was other members of the NASCAR staff, like inspecting that saw it. And it was the president that, thought it would, you know, be a good idea to bring in the FBI to make sure that Bubba Wallace, that's the other thing that's lost in all of this. They were trying to make sure that Bubba Wallace's life was not in jeopardy. But, you know, I, I obviously we, we talked about it. We're not going to like probably be huge NASCAR fans, but, you know, if you see on the sports center line that Bubba Wallace won a race or he finished top 10 or he made the playoffs or whatever for NHL, I mean, for NASCAR, like we'll be supportive of that. For example, they just announced uh, um the first black bachelor in the history of um the bachelor series, and between the bachelor and the bachelorette, I think there's almost forty seasons of both shows, and they only have one black person being the 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 main the the main contestant you know the, the the bachelor and that was um the young lady a couple of years ago that was the bachelorette and she she actually ended up with like a white person so from my idea with like the bachelor after all of these years you know you're basically trying to say like a white man is like the epitome of like attractiveness and that's who you want to be showcased as like the bachelor and then when you have like a black female um bachelorette and she chooses a white man, you're basically what's the word um reinforcing that idea. So now they finally have a black bachelor, and I just hope that they have like a divi- uh, diverse um group of women for him to um decide who's gonna who who he's gonna pick. Not strictly black, not strictly white. You see some um. Asian women, you see some Latino women, and going forward, you'd see an Asian bachelor, an Asian bachelorette, stuff like that. And I think, you know, with NASCAR and embracing Bubba Wallace, you're now opening yourself to that whole new audience that you probably didn't have before by embracing Bubba Wallace. Because, you know, maybe there have been black NASCAR fans, but now, you know, they'll be a lot more comfortable going to races because there aren't Confederate flags and there aren't like nooses being put up or used as pull ropes for, you know, their drivers. And then Griffey, I understand because, you know, there's certain things that happened in my childhood where I feel slighted and I'll hold things against people 
but I don't know if it was by design, but I didn't feel like it was appropriate to try to, um, cause to me, it felt like when he told our story that he was trying to portray George Steinbrenner as some kind of bigot. There's a famous story of, um, uh, this gentleman, um, I think his name is Ray Negron. He works for the Yankees. I think he's like the PI, the PR director. And George Steinbrenner actually found this kid, a uh, young Hispanic gentleman like Joel, uh, found him outside spray painting uh, across the street from Yankee Stadium. He grabs him and, you know, he could have like called the cops, uh, put this young uh, Hispanic man in jail. But he said, no, nah, there's certain, there's something you, you could be doing a lot better things with your life. He brought him in, made him a bat boy. And now this guy's like a huge person in the Yankees, like uh, organization. So I, I, I think like George Steinbrenner is far from a bigot. And just, you know, if you want to have a series and you want to have some kind of like um conflict in it, like you have to uh, provide context because Griffey did nothing for the rest of his career as far as the postseason went. Like, yeah, he went on to hit uh, 600 home runs and went on to be a Hall of Famer. But, yeah, you got, like, one big win over the Yankees, but the Yankees won the next uh, four out of the next five World Series and went to uh, a fifth, a fourth straight World Series, whereas, like, the Seattle, Mar- Seattle Mariners didn't make it any further than the ALCS. Uh, and they haven't been to the playoffs since 2003. Undertaker, uh, when I started watching wrestling, this was 1998. I was eight years old, so a lot of this stuff seemed real to me. So seeing and hearing from Undertaker now as an adult, hearing how invested he was in the character, I would like to let him know if he ever somehow listened to this, that I um, was truly... Uh, like Joel, I was truly scared of him because he was like crucifying people and and yeah. things of that nature. Yeah. yeah. 99, 98, Undertaker freaked me out. Earlier on, I oh, I felt like I sided with him. Like the whole thing in 94 where they he buried the, uh, man. the gasket. <laughs> Remember he when was, he I was more afraid of Papa Shango. He tried to embalm Stone Cold Steve Austin. He had a lot to embalm him. Do you remember like he hung scary. Big Boss Man? Oh from, yeah, he lynched from, like him. the Hell in the Cell. Yeah, like WrestleMania 15. They don't show it. They never show it anymore on the. Um, oh, they don't show it anymore. The, well, I remember on the highlights. Whoa, and he's well, he's dead now too, Big Boss Man. But I remember watching yeah. him like Cobb County. That was that was like 99. So uh, I mean, that was different connotations now. But uh, Big Boss Man, no oh, man, that was a that was a wacky one. That was that was the epitome of attitude. That was 99. So yeah, we were all young. Yeah, so on behalf of um, Shook Mitamoni, uh, we, on behalf of Mike and Joel, uh, seriously, thank you, Taker. It's been a great 30 years with WWE and then some um, and or the other organizations. And I'm glad that now you can finally enjoy um, civilian life. And uh, take, you can take a breather. You can take a breather. Yeah, man, you deserve it. You earned it. Um, there was no point in like his whole career, uh, especially in the last ten years, um, where I was like, all right, it's time for you to hang it up. Like, you know, with a lot of wrestlers, you see it. With a lot of wrestlers, you see it. Like, all right, like give it a rest. But he, you know, he he um stuck it out. 
And he entertained, like, the living shit out of all of us, man. So, on behalf of all of us, thank you, Taker, for entertaining us and basically um, being uh, WWE's rock. I mean, well, not the rock, but their their rock. Yeah, thank you, Taker. Oh yeah, sometimes I jam out to like the classical version of the guitar one from the late nineties. It's like that yeah. guitar. You know? Yeah, that Ministry of Darkness. Um Yeah, that's my favorite. Undertaker is my favorite Undertaker theme music. But um he put on a great match. Came out for Limp Biscuit too, I got, you know. Rolling. Yeah. Keep rolling, rolling. Well, yeah, man. Um, so we're gonna end it off with one last chant, and that chant is "Shug me the Mooney, Shug me the Mooney, Shug me the Mooney." Alright, guys. Alright, man. See y'all. See next time. <laughs>